So today, as part of our podcast series, which is powered by Upside Global, we have the honor to interview a group of sports performance experts. So first, we have Marco Nunez. Uh, Marco is a former head athletic trainer for the Lakers. So Marco, great to see you again on the show. Glad to be here. Thank you for being invited again. Great. So thank you, Marco. And then we have Karam Amdani, the head athletic therapist at the CF Impact Montreal, a top MLS team. So Karam, welcome. Hi, how are you? Great, I'm good, thank you. So, and then we have Alexi Pianozzi, who is a strength and conditioning coach for the Pittsburgh Penguins, the top NHL team. So Alexi, great to have you back on the podcast. Thanks for having me, happy to be here. Great, so, so guys, you know, uh, welcome to the show again. So what I wanted to talk about today was first the Djokovic, you know, Djokovic saga and whether or not athletes should be vaccinated to play. And then we'll talk about the impact of dehydration on athlete performance. I've got some stats for you guys. I'd like to get your feedback on that. And then we'll talk about the impact of biofeedback in elite sports. So how does it sound? Sounds good. Right. So the, you know, so the first question, right? So obviously there's been a lot of controversy with Novak Djokovic. Uh, the star tennis player was not able to play at the Australian Open tennis. Uh, so there was a whole controversy about that. Now, the latest on this is that with France lifting protocols around COVID-19 vaccine passports, Djokovic, who is not vaccinated, will likely be able to compete in the French Open. So starting on March 14, uh, vaccine passports will not be required in France. And also in basketball, as some of you have seen, Kerry Irvine, the NBA top player, right, for the Brooklyn Nets, also got approval to play without a vaccine. So my question to you guys is, should athletes be vaccinated uh, and should they be allowed to play without a vaccine? So who wants to start? Um, you know what, I can take a crack at it uh, since I'm, I'm uh, in the thick of things right now uh, with, uh, with the team. Yeah. Um, so so in, in my case, it, it goes even um, deeper uh, in, in terms of, uh, you know, vaccination and uh, testing and whatnot, uh, you know, we're in Canada, so um, the, the, the rules are a lot more stringent here. Um, yeah. And, and the, the topic of vaccination as a whole is a very controversial topic. Um, you know, there are a lot of people that are pro-vaccine, a lot of people that are uh, just against vaccination as a whole, you know, so... Yeah. Um, in terms of uh, professional sport, my opinion is uh, athletes should uh, get vaccinated because it's about uh, protecting them themselves. It's about protecting their fellow uh, athletes. And, um, you know, for the lack of a better word, it's just about protecting everybody so that we can enjoy uh, you know, playing uh, the game at, at a top level without having to deal with other uh, controversies here and there, like the Djokovic one or like the Kyrie Irving one uh, and whatnot. But all while respecting, um, you know, people's opinions and uh, whether they want to do it or not. You know, it's a, it's a very controversial uh, topic. There's no, no doubt about it. So, uh, good point, uh, Karam. So, uh, Alexi or Marco, do you guys want to go next? 
Yeah, um, I'll chime in next. Um, one, unfortunately, you know, I, I'm not currently working with the team, so I don't know the ins and outs as far as the policies, like you know, like you guys are. It's kind of interesting that you bring Hab Karam up here, especially you guys, you're up in Canada, and you brought up the Kyrie Irving issue, because I know they're hoping that the um, Brooklyn Nets would not play the Toronto Raptors in the first round, um, and there's a likelihood that's going to happen. So that's the case, the odds are that Kyrie would not be able to play up in Toronto whatsoever, because he's going to be able to play home games. So that's going to be an interesting part. Um, as for myself, you know, I am vaccinated. I also have the booster, so I am a pro uh, vaccination person. Um, I, I get that people like Trump said, you know, this is a big, big political, um, the political and controversial issue. Unfortunately, it is what it is. Um, there's some people that are pro vaccinators some people are anti-vaccinators. Uh, but at the, at, at the end of the day, at least I think and I hope that the countries are doing what they feel is best for their, their own country and their own state type of thing. So if you're, you're an athlete, and you understand, hey, you know what, fine, I'm not going to get vaccinated, but these are the rules of going there. Just like if you're a tennis player, just because you don't like the rules doesn't mean you're not going to play tennis. You're not going to go into this car, oh, you know, I don't like that rule anymore. That's stupid. I'm not, that's it. I'm not playing because I don't like the rules. That's just part of it. You're going to step in the court. These are the rules that have been set by the league. These are the rules that have been set by the country or the city or the state, and you just got to abide by them. Unfortunately, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to go and try to kind of break into that store. So if a country says you have to be vaccinated, well, that's your choice. If you choose not to be vaccinated, understand, hey, you know what? I'm not going to get to play the tournament. It is what it is. I'll wait till next year. I'll wait to move on top of things. But as far as the team-wise, like I said, I'm, I'm not in there, and I'm a little thankful because I know in the last two years, you guys have been going nuts, especially when everything kind of broke out and you guys were testing every single day. I've talked to some of my colleagues. I think it was more of a headache for you guys. Um, as a staff member, and I know some teams didn't bring extra help. They just kind of relied on the staff that you had on there. And, and being in those shoes before, it's already a grind. And to add that extra component, it makes, I, I know you guys love life for crazy. So my hat's off to you guys. So, uh, Alexi, what is your take on this whole uh, Djokovic controversy? Yeah, I think there was really good points made by, uh, by uh, both the other guys about, you know, there, there's an individual choice, I think, that you know, it's important to respect. I'm, you know, I, I've been vaccinated and boosted. I'm pro vaccine uh, in, in, in that regard. And I think, you know, you have to remember that a lot of these entities, whether it's a, a, you know, an NHL team, an MLS team, an NBA team, you know, it, it is a private business. The players always have the choice not to play, not to show up to, the, you know, to the pitch or to the game or to the court or the ice. Um, and that you now they, they always have the freedom to make that choice and they're not being forced to do anything. But you know, within a private business, um, if those are the rules put in place, like Marco said, then, you know, I think you need to abide by them. And, you know, Novak Djokovic, obviously I can't speak for him, but, you know, he'll have to, I'm sure he was disappointed, but probably comfortable with his decision to not play in, you know, the Australian Open. And I'm sure he's looking forward to playing in, in the French Open and being able to play under the terms that, you know, he wants to play under, which is his choice as an athlete. Um, you know, the ramifications of that, he didn't get to play in the Australian Open, which was a huge tournament for him, I know, and I'm sure he's disappointed, but, you know, everybody will have to make the decision they feel is best for them and live with whatever consequences are there. And I, I don't, I feel very fortunate that uh, the NHL and the Pittsburgh Penguins were, uh, were both keeping, you know, player health and player safety as the number one priority. And yes, we had to do a lot of testing and, you know, we lived in a bubble at one point, but I think it's important to remember too that where we are from a knowledge perspective right now is significantly different than where we were in March of 2020. You know, we know a 100%. lot more about, um, you know, what, uh, you know, what COVID does, how it mutates, how it, you know, transfers, you know, how different variants have affected different people or, you know, to different degrees and, you know, Omicron, you know, by preliminary data appears to be a little bit more mild. So, you know, you take that into consideration and, and you make, 
you know, public health policies based on the best information at the time, which is significantly more now than it was back in 2020. So you look back and think that some of those rulings or some of that policy was very harsh in 2020, but, you know, we didn't have a ton of information on it and now we do, and now we can make better decisions and all the while allowing people, I think, to make their own individual choice as well. And just, you know, telling them, Hey, if it's a, if, if it's a rule by the country or the, or the state or the province, whatever it may be, if you can't abide by those rules and, you know, you'll have to live with those uh, ramifications. And I'm sure Do Djokovic was disappointed, but ultimately, you know, happy to live with the, you know, under the choice that he wanted to make and not getting vaccinated himself. Yeah. And I, I think you made a good point. Well, I mean, I feel like we're definitely better off now than two years ago. The only big question is like, I was in Florida, right? In Orlando two weeks ago, nobody was wearing a mask. I, honestly, I was shocked. Like nobody was wearing a mask and because of the governor, I guess. But, you know, I don't know when we're going to be able to say, hey, everywhere we go, there's no need to put a mask. And I don't think anybody knows at this point. So, right. I think you still have the option, you know, what's good is even before COVID, you know, if you were maybe feeling sick or you'd had a fever the day before you had a cough and you were going to go visit your grandmother in an old folks home, you might have yeah. worn a mask or just not gone that day period and said, I'm, yeah. I'm a little under the weather. My, my friend recently had a baby. I'm a little under the weather. I'm not going to go visit now. There was always a little bit of discretion used. So I think you can kind of still use that discretion if you're going to somebody who's in a vulnerable population or at a hospital or something like that, and you want to wear a mask while you're there to protect them and protect yourself, then, you know, you have the freedom to do that. But if you also want to go into a Target or a grocery store or something like that, and, and you don't want to wear a mask, I think you kind of have the freedom now to do that. So, you know, I think we know there's a little bit of discretion can still be applied if you're around somebody who, you know, might be immunocompromised or something like that. Yep, that makes sense. So, uh, uh, yeah, Marco, do you yeah. want to say something? No, yeah, I mean, I, I completely agree with, with Alexi and, uh, you know, being an American and I hate this, but it's true that oftentimes Americans are very selfish. That's what it is. That's who we tend to be. Um, but like Alexi, Alexi mentioned, as far as just being uh, cautious about, you know, one rule of thumb that I do is I always carry a mask with me. Yes, I'm vaccinated. And I know the rules out here in, in Southern California, LA County and Orange County. Um, have eased up and you don't have to wear a mask. But what I do is if, as soon as I walk into top, any type of business, if the employees are wearing masks, I throw one on. And it's not for me, it's more for them out of courtesy type of thing. That's kind of like my rule of thumb. I walk into Starbucks. If all the employees are wearing a mask, I throw it on. It's just like Lexi mentioned, to try to protect them. It's not always about me. I hate to say this, but oftentimes Americans is about me, but it's more about them type of thing. So that's kind of my thing. If I walk in and they're not wearing masks, I'm like, okay, well, I have the freedom and I won't wear it. So that's kind of my rule of thumb. Uh, yeah, just wanted to add something to that, though. Um, interesting enough, I think that what people also need to recognize, and I say people as a general, like not just athletes, in general, people need to recognize that, you know what, if I do have some symptoms, if I, I don't know, runny nose, sore throat, whatnot, you know, just throw that mask on or uh, just stay home kind of thing. You know, advise your employer. I don't think that, you know, people are going to get upset if you're trying to take the necessary precautions to protect yourself and protect other people, uh, which, which I feel that people in general are not taking advantage of uh, nowadays. You know, it's, it's really important to, to recognize, hey, I'm sick, I should probably stay home as opposed to uh, whatever, and it's probably not COVID. And then three, three days down the line, oh, I have COVID. And then you got to make those phone calls and tell people, hey, I was exposed to you. I was exposed to you and you and you. I yeah. have COVID. I'm sorry. Go get checked. You know?
Yeah, that's a good point. A uh, very good point, uh, Karam. Um, the next topic I want to talk to you guys about was, and maybe it's more a topic closer to uh, Karam's heart, but, uh, you know, Chelsea owner, right, Abramovich, was sanctioned by the UK government for his ties to Vladimir Putin, the president of Russia. And so Abramovich put Chelsea Football Club for sale. Now, Chelsea Football Club has given interest parties a deadline of, of April 11 to submit their final offers for the teams. So, and I think they had about 20 offers on the table already, including from uh, Mr. McGregor, right? The uh, UFC fighter, which is kind of interesting. Uh, so what is your take on the Chelsea Football Club sale and the Ukraine-Russian situation? Anybody wants uh, to start? I'll, I'll take a crack. <laughs> yeah. Um, so so uh, further to that, uh, I'm... Uh, a former uh, Chelsea legend uh, played for for Montreal for CF Montreal um, Didier Drogba, and um, yeah. we were we were actually pretty tight. Uh, him and I, we uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how it was uh, with the Lakers, uh, Marco, but you know they the, the the players sort of gravitate to like one guy, and they're like, okay, you're my guy, and I'm just you, you know I, I no one else touches me. It's only you. So that was kind of how how it was with him and um you know I, that's where i i really developed a a, a true fondness to to the, the you know chelsea football club uh, watching yeah. uh, a whole bunch of highlights while you know treating him uh because he'd be he'd be like oh look i scored this goal uh you know there and uh, this is what happened leading up to the goal this is why i celebrated the way i celebrated and, and whatnot um so i can i can give you guys a whole bunch of anecdotes about different stories that he's given me. But to the point where, you know, about um, Russia and, and, and Ukraine and uh, the sale of the um, of Chelsea, uh, you know, the sale of Chelsea has huge implications. You know, it's, it's not just about the, the, the sport, you know, the the the, the endorsements, the, the deals that that may fall through. Uh, because of uh, of the sale, uh, you know, it's it's what we what we fail to realize when we're outsiders is it's it's a one giant ecosystem, and um, part of that ecosystem is the, the owner who sort of uh, helps fund it, so to speak. And and when you have different ownerships who come in, it sort of throws uh, the the ecosystem into. Uh, turmoil, so to speak, but uh, a little, uh, you know, word on, on Russia and, and uh, Ukraine, um, you know, my, my heart goes out to uh, all the Ukrainians. It's, it's a very, very uh, difficult uh, pass um, that uh, they're going through. And I, I have, um, uh, you know, I say no to violence, uh, a strong no to, to, to violence. Uh, being uh, of Iraqi descent myself, uh, you know, yeah. I've, uh, I've I've been through the you know the war and you know having to leave your country and you know moving to to a different place. So it, my heart really goes out to to them and to everything that um, you know these people are are dealing with. So uh, that's my my two cents on. Well, I totally understand, uh, Karam, and I and I and I worked and. Well, you know, I was in a Chelsea Football Club actually at the, the Stanford Bridge about a month ago visiting some of the top executives. And funny enough, when I had my meeting about 10 minutes uh, before I met the guy from my contact at Chelsea, Walter Abramovich, he said, I got a meeting in an hour uh, with management. So 
uh, I'm sure it's tough because you know those guys, their job could be on the line right now. Yeah, they don't know exactly. what's going to happen. Uh, exactly, but it, it's tough. It, it's difficult to know. Um, so it's a tough situation. But uh, um, Marco and, and Alex, any comments? I know in the NHL, for example, there's a lot of Russian players. Uh, so it's tricky, right? It's tricky from uh, from that perspective. And I've seen some announcements from players and stuff like that. So, yeah, it's 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 absolutely a, a tricky thing because you know. Uh, I feel the same way that, you know, I say no to war and say no to violence. And I, you know, I, I feel so, so terrible for the people back in Ukraine who are just, you know, I, I estimates, I don't even know where they're at now with how many millions of people have been displaced and into the neighboring countries. And I know the U.S. is going to accept some in Canada and obviously Poland and, you know, the nearby neighbors are working hard on the humanitarian aspect, but I, I, I certainly feel for them. And, it's so easy to be uh, removed from a situation like that when you're in North America. And, you know, if you didn't turn on the news, you'd have no idea it was even happening. And so, you know, yeah. at the same time, if for the people who are there, there's no way to escape it. So, you know, I, I'm very fortunate that I've never had to be in a situation like that growing up in Canada, obviously, and now living in the U.S. Um, it's never really quite hit home like that. But, um, you know, it, it's a very difficult time for the Ukrainian people. And then I think, you know, for the Russian uh for Russian people who might feel exactly as we do, but um, you know, can't, you know, if your country does something like that and you you don't really have a say in it, obviously. So, you know, some of these uh, athletes who might be playing in North America, whether it's the NHL or the NBA or, or MLS, whatever it might be, you know, they might not have even been back to Russia for several years or a decade since they came over. So, you know, their ties, I'm sure they're, they're, they were very proud to be Russian. They, they may still be proud. You know, I wouldn't want to speak for them, but it's a difficult situation because they're so far removed from, you know, those decisions that are made at the top and the ramifications that they, uh, that happen after that. But they may have family or friends back in Russia who they're also worried about their safety as well. So it's a difficult situation. And in my role, I get a chance to talk to some players like that and just try to be as supportive as I can. And, as empathetic as I can, because I can't put myself in their shoes. I've never been there, but um, I can only imagine how difficult it must be for them. For sure, yeah, it must be tough. Um, uh, Marco, any any thoughts on the whole um, situation with Russia? Um, no, yeah, I mean, it, it's sad to see all these uh, Ukrainians kind of have been uh, are forced to leave their country just to be able to survive as far as what's going on with the war. Um, I don't, I know, I'm, I'm still trying to grasp it or understand the reason for it. And I know there's like, there's supposedly two sides to it. You know, a lot of Russians up there, what I keep hearing is that they're getting one version of the story and everybody's getting, but um, just in general, as far as all the Ukrainian people and everybody has had to go to either Poland or just flee the country just to try to stay safe. Um, at the same time, unfortunately, you know, when the NBA, I don't think I ever had a, um, an athlete from Russia. We had a couple of Croatian athletes there, type thing. Obviously, we have a little German stuff like that. But nothing, nothing, I've never had to be able to had an opportunity to encounter or work with anybody in the NBA as, as far as Russia. Um, but that's interesting. And as far as Chelsea, um, I, I knew I knew uh, I read something about that he was selling it, but I didn't understand what were the details on there. So unfortunately, I can't comment on that part. That's okay, no worries. I mean, basically, uh, Abramovich, who is the owner of Chelsea, has some strong ties with Putin. The president of Russia, so there's been a whole lot of, you know, issues with the UK government and so on. But anyway, uh, it's complicated, very complicated. Uh, and I even heard that Abramovich is actually looking to buy a Turkish club right now, uh, apparently. So, uh, but apparently he's been uh, poisoned. Uh, there's a speculation, right? Abramovich has been poisoned uh, during a meeting in Ukraine when he was trying to be a peacemaker. So it's it's just nuts. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. But um, 
so that's the next topic. It's you know it's more closer to sports performance, right? Uh, I like to talk about the impact of dehydration on athlete performance. Now I'm going to get you a few statistics on that. So there seems to be a real impact of dehydration on the human's body, depending on the percentage uh, body weight loss. So for example, a five percent decrease in body weight leads to heat exhaustion, but things get a lot worse once we reach a seven percent decrease in body weight as athletes often start suffering from hallucination. I'm not kidding, hallucination. And then finally, a 10% decrease in body weight often leads to heat stroke uh, and even collapse. So what is your take on you know, the impact of dehydration on performance and how much of an impact does dehydration have on the performance of players? Have you used any technologies to measure dehydration? Or what, what is your whole take on this? Um, I'll go ahead and go first. Uh, one, I think, uh, I think water con consumption of water is one of the most underrated, um, issues as far as pre activity and then, and more importantly, post activity as far as, uh, as far as the recovery process, obviously everybody drinks some water before they consume some kind of their electrolytes, hydration during activity. Um, but they tend to neglect as far as post activity as part of the recovery process. Everybody's really concerned about getting their proteins or carbohydrates, um, everything afterwards to be able to replenish. Uh, the muscles, but they tend to forget about the hydration portion of it. Yeah. Um, I'll give you a quick story. I think I had already mentioned this story to one of our other uh, podcasts. We had a player yeah. with Lakers. Um, every time we traveled on the dot, we would land at a city. We'd leave, leave the city, go to the next city. We'd land about one o'clock, two o'clock in the morning. He would shoot me a text or give me a call. Hey, Marco, I have a migraine. Marco, I have a migraine. I have a headache, headache. And it was just auntie every single time for a couple of weeks. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So when we get back, we checked his blood work. Um, and we quickly realized that some of his, um, that, that some of his like sodium levels, potential levels, all this stuff was really low compared to all these athletes. So we did a basic sweat analysis. We had, we were at the time we were partnered up with GSSI, a Gatorade Sports Science Institute. They came back down. They did a whole sweat analysis on him. We went ahead and did it on the whole entire team. Well, lo and behold, we found out that this athlete was already pre dehydrated before even the activities even started, let alone when he was already post. So that was kind of developing the, the headaches. Um, Gatorade helped us create a customized hydration program for all our athletes type of thing. Um, and the process began at, at Sugaron. I mean, the game was at 7.30. The hydration process began as early as 8.30 in the morning when they arrived, wow. when they left uh, the facility, when they arrived to the arena, during the meeting, halftime, and more importantly, post-game, everybody had their own customized hydration um, on that part. Um, and then at least uh, after we did that, the athlete never called me uh, ever again for uh, for migraine headache, maybe once or twice, but it was for a different form of dehydration. It wasn't because of uh, that part. We were obviously- so like, you did a good job. So like you did that, a good job. You did a great job. Then. Yeah. So, yeah so, so they did a great job. But I mean, overall, I, I think sometimes that becomes an underrated uh, portion of it as far as the recovery process, just for athletes of all ages, period. Mm -hmm. uh, Marco, Alexi, do you guys have any take on that? Yeah, I think- um, you know, hydration, we've also used um, the Gatorade Sports Science Institute before, Dr. Spree up from uh, Guelph, Ontario. Great, great guy, great practitioner, done some really good research around it. We usually do um, sweat testing once a year uh, just on our players. Granted, if we have a little bit more roster turnover, we might need to do a little bit more testing than that. But just to get a baseline on, I think, you know, it, it's pretty easy to tell who the big sweaters are and who aren't uh, big sweaters. Um, you know, the amount of sodium in that sweat or the sodium concentration, I think it's a little bit harder to decipher. So getting some of those metrics, I think can be particularly helpful, but I find it very individualized, especially at least in hockey based on position. I know that for us, the biggest sort of dehydration risks or the biggest drops in body weight during a game is by far with goaltenders. Um, now goaltending, for, for those who don't know hockey's 
you know, the, the five other skaters on the ice, pretty similar in terms of their, you know, uh, work capacity, body compositions, uh, and then, you know, the demands of the sport. Goaltending is almost completely different. You know, they stay in their net. They move a very small amount in terms of distance traveled. But, yeah. you know, when we analyze their heart rate pattern during a game as compared to a, a player who might be going up and down and resting on the bench, goalies are much more aerobically driven. Their heart rate tends to stay high at a relatively high rate for the entire duration of the game. Um, and they just don't get the same breaks as, as skaters do. So consequently, we, we, we see that, you know, dehydration becomes a much bigger risk for them. They're losing a lot more body weight uh, as a percentage. Their sodium is dropping. So a lot of our, you know, biggest demand from a dehydration perspective has come with goaltenders. Um, so looking at them and, and, and trying to figure out what's the, you know, an optimal way to dose it, because I think if you're also playing an 82 game season, and you're playing playoffs and you're in and out of, you know, some games are in South of Florida, some games are up in Winnipeg in Canada, you know, some uh, arenas are warmer than others. The ambient temperature can be different, but you know, if you're having to drink the same, you know, electrolyte beverage for five times a game for 82 games, then on practice days, we've had guys have some major palatability issues as well. So trying to find some novel ways to get in the requisite amount of sodium, probably some different forms of carbohydrate as well, especially later in games or overtime is definitely a challenge. So um, it's something we try to address with individual hydration strategies on a per game basis. And that's usually based on uh, some sweat data we will collect using uh, the GSSI as Marco was alluding to. So I, I, it's interesting. So Alex, a quick question before I let uh, uh, Karan talk. How much, how much liquid fluids do as a hockey player, like a, a goalie, right? How much yeah. fluid do they lose per game? Do you know? Um, we haven't done any in-game testing. The majority of our work has been based on practice times. Um, we have a little bit of limitations in terms of what we're allowed to test or collect during a game situation. Yeah. Um, but, you know, one of the most extreme examples that I can think of, we had a goaltender who was probably drinking six to seven liters of fluid and losing, by our estimation, about six grams of sodium. Uh, we were supplementing with six grams of sodium per game, which is, you know, I think a pretty high amount. So, you know, that's definitely an a bit of an outlier. That's an extreme example. But um, if you go back far enough, there was, a, I think it was the 2003 Stanley Cup Finals. There was a goaltender who's now retired, Jean-Sebastien Giguere, who was playing for mm -hmm. Anaheim at the time. He was a con Smythe, one of only two or three players to be the con Smythe or playoff MVP on the losing team. But he was, he was amazing. And he was losing, they were saying, uh, you know, close to 20 pounds. In, in, 20 in a, pounds <laughs> which you 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 can't even fathom you know losing that much fluid and still being able to play so i can only imagine this was back in the early 2000s too what his hydration strategy was or what the team's hydration strategy was so you know fortunately we never had someone quite that bad we've seen six seven eight pounds nine pounds before but um you know something like that is 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 pretty extreme interesting yeah it is extreme uh karam any any thoughts on that um, I wish uh, our team had the, the budgets that uh, uh, Marco with the Lakers or Alexi with the Penguins have uh, in order to uh, get that type of uh, sweat data. But I do have to say that it is one of the uh, most um, uh, you know, uh, undervalued uh, information that uh, we can get from, from our, uh, our athletes. But uh, coming back to, to our sport, uh, there, are, there are some differences um, between our sport and, for example, hockey and, and basketball, where um, it, in hockey, there's shift work, 
in basketball, uh, there's, uh, you know, uh, timeouts that are called uh, and whatnot. Uh, with, with us, it's 45 minutes and it's you go, 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 a 15 minute break and then another 45 minutes. So it becomes very difficult for us to, uh, you know, flag our athletes and say, okay, you're, you're starting to get dehydrated. You come to the sideline. Let me give you, give you some water. So it becomes yeah. a, a strategy where you got to have them hydrate the day before and the, the day of the, the match. Um, obviously if you're in hotter areas, then you really need to put emphasis on the hydration and tell them guys, listen, it, it's hot out there. Um, we, uh, we need to have you guys hydrate the day before the day of, um, you know, make sure you, you prepare yourself to, to uh, ensure that you last the 90 plus minutes um, without going into uh, cramps or heat exhaustion or, or whatnot. Uh, most recently, uh, FIFA instilled uh, rules where if, um, you know, depending on the heat or humidity levels, outside they will instill a hydration break and those hydration yeah. breaks happen at the third and 30th and the 75th minute um, of uh, the game you basically get three minutes and it's all hands on deck uh, medical staff uh, performance staff giving hydration uh, to the players uh, cold uh, towels to, to try to bring the the heat uh, down but uh, other than that uh, the, the number one strategy that we adopt is we know that at the beginning of the season, we will be playing against teams in hotter uh, temperatures. So Florida, Orlando, uh, Miami, whatnot. Uh, so we, we literally go to Florida to do yeah. our training camps. So yeah. the, the, the players get acclimatized to playing in heat for prolonged periods of, of time. But, um, you know, some great insight from both Marco and Alexi in terms of um, the Gatorade Sports Science Institute. I'm definitely going to look into what types of strategies do they uh, have and, and what type of tests that we can do to um, fine tune our athletes, most definitely. They've, yeah. um, they, they've got some interesting programs for them. Uh, with they, we used to have uh, Dr. Spree himself come down with five or six sort of graduate interns kind of thing. And they would run everything from start to finish and we'd put them up, you know, for their stay kind of thing, which I would imagine a little bit more expensive, but last year they actually just sent us, you know, a big kit with all of the testing we could do ourselves with instructions on how to apply sweat patch to the forehead. So, you know, I know that was definitely a lot, um, a lot easier financially, definitely more work for your performance staff, but that might be a route that could work really well. Cause then you can kind of do it on an individual or a team basis, just sort of apply and then, you know, soak out and pipe at the, the solution to get a little bit of a readout. So it was actually relatively simple. So I would look into that as um, sort of a, a, an entry level way to do it. That's sort of best bang for your buck, I'd say. Oh, amazing. Thanks. Thank you. Yeah. And also, uh, uh, Karam and even Alexi. So the company Flowbio that I introduced you guys, they actually have a, a, a kit test. So it's a kit. It's not a patch. The patch will be available later on. In a few months, but you can use that to test and measure hydration, sweat volume. I can, you should probably follow up with a CEO, but they have that available. It's available now. It's just brand new from like a week ago. So, oh, beautiful. I'd love to try that out, uh, honestly, because, um, you know, especially now with the weather that we have, I mean, we're training outside, it's like minus five. 
So the guys are sweating, but they don't really know that they're sweating because it's cold, you know? So they come inside and, uh, you know, they, they, oh yeah, my head hurts a little bit. Well, maybe you're dehydrated, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So look, if you want me to remake an intro to you guys, I'm happy Please. to do that. But the patch, the patch itself will be available this year. So, uh, you know, you'll be able to, to use that. It's only 75 bucks. It's only 75 bucks for the patch. And it comes with a bunch of uh, reusable patches. So anyway, um, and, and by the way, uh, wow, a big F1 driver, Formula One driver, won the, the, the championship seven times. I let you guess who that is, invested in them. So I should probably say that. I should not say that, but I will say it. Um, so uh, last, last topic was about the impact of biofeedback in elite sports. So there's been a growing number of teams that have started to use biofeedback to help the players get in the zone, right? Reduce the heart rate. And I, I am by any means an expert in this, right? So about a decade ago, teams like AC Milan, Real Madrid, Chelsea, starting putting those mind rooms, they call them the mind rooms, where the players had to go into those rooms and watch videos of the plays that they made when they missed passes and shots. And from what I understand, right? So they had to be comfortable watching those videos and that really helped them to get in the zone and control their heart rate. So, uh, and they could not, so the teams would not allow those, those players to train if they, they would not go through the, the mind room, for example, every day. So uh, what, what is your take on biofeedback? Have you used bio, biofeedback before? I believe, Alexi, you, you've done it. Uh, but what is your take on, on this whole biofeedback uh, movement? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll start this one then. Um, I think biofeedback is really, really interesting um, sort of field, for lack of a better term. What, uh, what AC Milan was doing there, I hadn't heard of before. It, um, it's funny, my, my first impression was not even on the science or on the, you know, the, the biofeedback itself, but I was like, oh man, you're making these guys do another thing. They have to go in the mind room or they can't. That's play. Right. You know, that, that, that sounds a little intense to me. It's, I think we talked on the last call just about, you know, these professional athletes are so inundated with so many things they already have to do. So trying to minimize you know, the things they have to do and, and extra obligations, um, you know, I think is always a priority, at least uh, in our organization, trying to minimize the impact on the players and give them the best bang for their buck. But um, the where the, the area that I think biofeedback, at least for me, shows the most promise, I think, is on some of the recovery elements. Um, I know, uh, like Hyperice has a new device, the core that's um, kind of uses some vibration and uh, to let you know when to when you're breathing or your heart rate is starting to escalate a little bit, um, things like the Muse S headband or um, yes. from Canada, right? Muse, yeah, from Toronto, yeah, yeah, yeah from Toronto. Also, do uh, use kind of the same thing, but they use sort of weather patterns as your uh, brainwave activity changes a little bit to give you some feedback. I think you know teaching players how to relax, teaching players how to calm down and, and use the, their breath to their power, to their advantage or you, the power of breathing as um, Dr. Zakowski might say, uh, yeah. I think it's an incredible advantage that is not, not really utilized right now. It's really easier. No, I shouldn't say really easy, but it's easier to get people to sort of work hard and connect the, the dots between that and their performance, but to connect the dots between just deep breathing and sitting in a quiet room and calming down for five or 10 minutes. I think um, at least in my experience, players have a harder time, connecting that to the to the benefits of their performance um you know it, it's hard to feel when your parasympathetic tone increases or your sympathetic tone decreases but i think we know pretty well that that can be advantageous post game and in a recovery session so any device that can aid in that process i think is going to be very useful and i think some of these biofeedback devices that allow you to 
understand a little bit more when you're relaxed, when you're not help guide you into some of those deeper breathing patterns, I think can be, uh, can be really good. So I, I'm looking forward to learning more about that side of the biofeedback um, environment and any devices that can kind of help along that route. Makes sense. Thank you, Alexi. Uh, Karam, Marco, any thoughts? Yeah, no, I, I mean, as, as far as the uh, the recovery process, utilizing uh, biofeedback and like that to try to get your HRV level uh, pretty low. Um, I agree with Alexi. Sometimes they, they don't seem to understand that. But when I bring up the issue, hey, as soon as we get your heart rate, your HRV level down down to, to what, what, what should be, that's when your recovery process begins type of thing. And they kind of start kind of connecting the dots on that part. Um, the other area of uh, feedback that I like to use a lot is in the re rehabilitation process. I know there's a lot of companies out there that have like EMG sensors um, they can utilize with either embedded shorts or tights or anything like that. So as I'm, as I'm rehabbing uh, uh, the athlete, not only is the athlete receiving feedback as far as making sure that the, the specific muscles are being activated, but I also get feedback that when the athlete is in a, we talked about this, in an uncontrolled environment and they reach their comp story stage or their fatigue stage, I can be able to identify from my end and be able to kind of either address any issues, hopefully reduce the risk of injuries or make yeah. any corrections that I need to do with the athlete. And you're referring to the EMG sensors from like Strive, for example? Is that what you're referring yeah, to? I, I, I think Strive is one of them. Um, who's the other one? Also, Neurosess. Neurosess. Ethos. Anthos. Anthos, guys, Anthos, they're out of business. Anthos, oh, out of October, they're totally done. Okay. Yeah. But, so but, but, uh, yeah, but a few weeks ago. Yeah, and, and, and just in general, as far as the feedback, whether it's EMG sensor, I know there's a company that's coming out with um, insoles. They have uh, um, ground force uh, measurements Lentiga. in there. It's almost Lentiga. like a, yeah, it, yeah with, with walking, pretty much walking uh, horse place type of thing. Um, yes. Just stuff like that, as far as either more measurements for the athlete in general or for myself. Um, but, you know, what, the, the one thing when it comes down to what I noticed with athletes and like Alexi mentioned, oftentimes it's very difficult to get them to understand, but once you do get them to understand and you kind of educate them and how it's going to help their performance, whether it's pre-activity, post-activity for recovery, they, at least I've noticed they tend to be a little more receptive to it. Yeah. Makes sense. Uh, thank you, uh, Marco Karam. Um, so, so yeah, following, uh, to be honest with you, it, it's, um, it's a very broad topic. Uh, biofeedback and it can be used in, in you know many many different aspects. Uh, we've we've used it historically in uh, recovery from um, from concussion. So we'll use uh, computer uh, you know computer um, programs uh, and and have the, the the individual who's coming back from a concussion sort of follow you know follow certain dots and and whatnot you know just eye tracking whatnot. Uh, yeah. That seems to help with the uh, uh, the athlete uh, because once again a concussion uh, you know revolves around the brain and it's the the one muscle that we can't really quantify in, in terms of like hands-on experience on how it's uh, evolving. So that that that's really a good tool that that we've uh, we've used in the past uh, and uh, present. Uh, we most recently uh, started using Strive. So uh, unfortunately, this uh, this year we've uh, we've had injuries, but the injuries were more um, uh, joint related and not uh, uh, MSK uh, injuries. So we're we're waiting to have uh, you know a hamstring or a quad uh, because the the, the shorts. Um, you know, uh, provide you with the biofeedback of the, the muscles that are firing, uh, and and we wanna we wanna be able to 
fine tune how the person is firing that individual muscle, uh, uh, obviously via the the uh, the shorts and the um, uh, you know connected to our phone. Um, from a, from another perspective, we've also tried to educate um, the players. Uh, I don't know. I don't know how it is in in um, you know uh, the basketball or in or in uh, uh, hockey, but a lot of our players play FIFA, uh, whichever year it is. They 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 yeah. love to play uh, FIFA. So um, our our coaches try to uh, emulate some of uh, what's happening on the field. And then try to sort of have it connect to what they're doing when they're playing the game. So it's like, okay, well, your position is this. You might want to be doing this or that. And then they try to do it while they're they're playing against each other or, or whatnot. Mm-hmm. So they, they try to gamify things. They try to make it fun so that, you know, it, it doesn't always be a mundane, boring task. Makes sense. Yeah, I mean, I didn't think about the use case for a guy who's coming back with concussions, right? That's another mm-hmm. interesting use case. Um, Alexi, do you have any any final comments on that? Or? Uh, not really, but gamifying it, like, uh, that, sound, that sounds really cool. That sounds like a good idea for, uh, and the NHL game is popular in the NHL, I think, as well, but uh, that, that's a good idea. I never thought of that. There you go. It- the moment you make it a game, they're all into it. And the moment you you there's a you got to keep score, then oh my god, they're all into it. They, yeah. You know that that's what an athlete is. That they have that competitive edge, and if you can find a way to sort of get into that, then you're home Absolutely. free. Yep, great call. Yeah, uh, a great uh, great use case. So guys, we are at the end of the the podcast today. So I want to thank you for your time. Uh, so thank you very much. It was a great discussion. Thanks for having me. Thank Thank you you. very, very much. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you, Joan, for having us again. Yep. Thank you.